Well, we are as a church in the book of Acts. Today we find ourselves in Acts chapter 19. And really, this is kind of the, the, the uh, just yet again, another kind of turning point really towards the end of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 19 is where Paul starts his third and final missionary journey. And a few weeks ago, when Pastor John, a.k.a. the weatherman, preached, he put up a fancy map. And I thought, ooh, that's really cool. So I also have a map of uh, Paul's third missionary journey. And I realized, as we put it up, that's probably too small for you to actually see anything. But it's pretty, and that's great. Actually, here's, here's what's important about this map, is it's a reminder for us that the book of, the, of, the book of Acts— is that the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, comes to the Jewish people, he dies, he rises again, and then he commissions his disciples and says, now you go, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the very ends of the earth to tell people that Jesus is king. And now the gospel has gone so far flung, well beyond you know, modern-day Israel, well beyond Turkey, well beyond modern-day Greece, to far-flung places of the world like Linwood, Washington. And we get to celebrate the gospel of Jesus Christ here this morning as a result of these people's faithfulness so many years ago. So that's pretty awesome. In most weeks, we've been having our scripture reading done in in multiple different languages to remind us that this this truth, the gospel going to all languages. So I'm going to invite Yana to come up, and she's going to read in Russian first and then in English. And I just want to remind you, you know, even if you don't understand the Russian language, this is the word of God. And we have brothers and sisters uh, in Russia worshiping Jesus uh, today, and so we can uh, have our hearts united with them by faith. So Yana, would you please read for us here this morning? We'll be reading it from Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 25. Собрав их и других подобных ремесников, сказал, друзья, вы знаете, что от этого ремесла зависит благосостояние наше. Между тем, вы видите и слышите, что не только в Ефесии, но почти во всей Асии этот Павел своими убеждениями совратил немало числа людей, говоря, что делаем руками человеческие, не суть боги. Это нам угрожает тем, что не только ремесла наши придет в презрение, но и храм великой богини Артемерии ничего не будет значить и испровернется величие той, которую почитает вся Асия и Вселенная. Выслушав это, они исполнились яростью и стали кричать, говоря, «Велика Артемедия Ефесская!» So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him, and even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Men. Thank you, Yana. Lord, we give this time to you now. God, I ask that you would guide and direct my words, that I would only teach that which is in line with your truth of your word. Holy Spirit, we know that you are present with us. Would you make your presence known in our hearts, that you are not far off, you are not distant, that you want to work in us, you want to work on us, you want to work through us for the glory of Jesus because of our great Father in heaven. So we give this time to you now. We pray this all in Jesus' good name. Amen. 
So I had a conversation, my oldest daughter yesterday started working kind of her first job and we're talking about like getting paychecks and how you check your pay stubs and all that kind of stuff. And it made me reflecting back on when I was about that same age at 16 and saving up my money for my first truck. It was a 1996 Ford Ranger and folks, it didn't work at all. It was a complete lemon that a scam artist sold my dad. And, uh, but it, even like thinking about that, kind of those stages of life, the things that you get to purchase and the excitement, any of you guys remember being like a little kid and having like your first money that you're going to save up for your first like real big purchase? I, I, I was thinking about for myself, there's one that came to mind was maybe somewhere around six or seven years old. I saved up like birthday money and I purchased this awesome Lego castle. And I'm so full of regret that I don't still have it to this day because I would still play the heck out of those Legos if I had them. What about anybody? I know people online, you can't really like yell through your TV. Anybody here like, do you remember? Like, is there something you remember as like a kid? Like I saved up for what? What comes to mind for you? Don't be bashful. Air Jordans? Yeah. How high did they make you jump? Like 20 feet tall? Like all your wildest dreams came true, right, Myung? What else? A Barbie horse that walked. All right. Man, you probably had some jealous other girls around you. And that. Pete actually got the same thing. Uh, what else? A what? Model airplane? Oh, you're still tinkering with stuff to this day. I want to be like you when I grow up, Tom. It's good. You know, there's that, there's that moment of like, this is so important to me. This is so special to me. I really want to... Like, I want to save up, I want to, I want to buy this thing. And then as you get older, that save up and buy that thing just becomes so much less cool. Do I get any men from any of the grown-ups in the room? You know, Sarah was up here talking a minute ago about how she purchased her first house. And I was like, yay, because I, two years ago, had to purchase my first replacement roof for a house. And that's just way less cool. Uh, my car, like one of my wiper blades went out and I got a headlamp that's out. And a few, like I went, I had to go buy like some bulbs and wiper blades, bulbs and wiper blades. It's like a hundred dollars. I was so mad. I'm like, I could have bought Legos with that hundred dollars and enjoyed myself a lot more. Money is a big deal. And sometimes in the church, because of ways that certain churches or church leaders have misused Money, it can be a sensitive topic to talk about, but not just in the church, really for all of us, you know, as we were growing up in our family of origin, we heard certain messages related to money. Money was tight, and so therefore money was a sensitive subject. It was something of fear or anxiety, or money was plenty, and there was always so much, and money became something that was like worshipped. We all have money interactions with money that go much deeper than just mere transactional level. It goes really all the way down to the heart level. And you guys, the Bible has a lot to say about money. Amen? The Bible has a lot to say about money because money is a big deal to our entire lives. And in this passage today, we are going to see how the gospel of Jesus Christ brought serious economic disruption and an opportunity to reevaluate finances in the light of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we're going to do it. We're going to talk about money today. And I'll just let Jesus have the big idea for today because he's the one that said, where your treasure is, there your heart 
the core of your being, the center of who you are. You want to know about, you want to know where you are? Check your receipts. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Let's pick it up. Chapter 19, verse 1. While Apollos was in Corinth, we met Apollos last week, a gifted preacher, but he had some holes in his theology and his doctrine needed to be shored up. While he's, tra- while he's in Corinth, Paul started traveling around through the interior regions and came to Ephesus. He found some disciples and he asked them, these, these are people who already have believed in Jesus, but he said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? No, they told him. We haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Well, into what were you baptized, he asked them. Into John's baptism, they replied. So remember, Apollos, his, his big deficiency, the, the passage just before this, he didn't know about the baptism of Jesus. He only knew about the baptism of John. So here, Paul is teaching and explaining what Priscilla and Aquila would have been teaching and explaining to Apollos. So Paul said, look, John's baptism, that was a baptism of repentance, telling people that they should believe in the one to come after him, like get ready for the Messiah. That's a, that's a preparation baptism, but that is now Jesus. So when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Friends, we believe that baptism is an act of faith in which you, you place your trust in Jesus, that he lived a perfect life, he died, he rose again to offer you salvation and new life in him. And then as a response, as an act of response, we then go into the waters of baptism to say, I'm all in on team Jesus. And friends, we are going to baptize some people on Resurrection Sunday coming up in just a few short weeks. If you have not been baptized as a believer in Jesus, listen, with all the love and respect in the world to our Presbyterian or Anglican or Christian Reformed brothers and sisters, we unapologetically believe that baptism is not something that happens in infancy. Baptism is something that takes place after you have made a profession of faith in Jesus as an act of response and an act of obedience to him. So we love you, Tim Keller, but we want to baptize those people, okay? So friends, if you've not been baptized, come talk to me. You can sign up online. Go talk to somebody at the Connect Desk. We want to have that conversation with you. If the Lord is prompting you to be baptized, please don't delay obedience to him. Now, when Paul had laid his hands on these people, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they began to speak in tongues and to prophesy. There were about 12 men in all. Tongues showing that the gospel is for all the nations, all the people groups of the world. And prophecy, the the gift of prophecy being that, that all will now speak truth about God, that all can now articulate what is true about God, that one of the blessings of the new covenant is that your your men and your women and your young and your old will all prophesy because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's all coming true in real time for this first generation of Jesus followers. Verse eight, Paul entered the synagogue And spoke boldly over a period of three months, arguing and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became hardened and would would not believe, they, they slandering the way in front of the crowd, he withdrew from them, taking the disciples and conducted discussions every day in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. There's a there's an unfortunate reality that we live with, friends, in that when we proclaim the gospel of Jesus, some will believe and others won't. 
There's an old saying, and nobody really knows who said it first. It's, it's attributed to a lot of different people. But the saying is, the same sun that melts ice hardens clay. It's the same sun. Some will have their hearts soften and melt like ice after a long winter. Others, their hearts will become hardened like clay in the desert. And Paul, and he had to know when to move on and say it's about it's about time I need to go find more fruitful soil. It's also an interesting move here because it opens him up to more of a Gentile audience. And this must have been so confusing for Paul, by the way, right? Why are my Jewish countrymen, why are my kinsmen not believing that the Messiah has come? I mean, I mentioned it last week, but in Romans, he just cries out like, why? Why are their hearts so hardened? But nevertheless, God used it to open the door for him to begin to preach to non-Jewish people. And he goes to the lecture hall. The Greek word there is literally skole. It's school of Tyrannus, which is, in the Greek, it's Tyrannus Rex. And uh, so, I'm just kidding. But it's, it, the name literally just means a tyrant. Uh, we don't know exactly who this person is, but there's some sort of public school, some sort of lecture hall, where Paul is able to go and use that to preach the gospel of Jesus. This went on, it says, for two years. That's way longer than Paul stayed anywhere, even longer than Corinth. He was only there for about a year and a half. So that all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, people who were coming to Ephesus, heard the word of the Lord. It was all spreading out. And God was performing extraordinary miracles by Paul's hands so that face cloths or aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Man, we are so cynical and jaded, aren't we? We're so skeptical in the West that that God would maybe want to do some things like this that would just blow our mind. Lord, would we not be fearful? And would we also hold to the idea that Paul calls these in 2 Corinthians, he calls these signs that he's a true apostle. Never forget, God can and does work miracles. Amen? God can, I'm, 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 God can and does work miracles, friends. Amen? But they're always a sign to the greater reality. So we don't stop at the miracle. We don't stop at the sign. We let it propel us to the fact that Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus died a sinner's death, was buried in the tomb for three days. And on the third day, he rose from the dead and says, I will give you eternal life. That's the reality. The sign is a sign. So we pray for those signs to validate the message of the gospel we're preaching, but it still is always about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, verse 13. Here is an interesting little story. Some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, uh, I bet you when you went to like career day, the job fair, they didn't have that table set up for you. You know, I want to be a Jewish exorcist, but I also don't want to be at home very much. I've got it. Itinerant Jewish exorcist. They also attempted to pronounce the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. In light of this miraculous stuff that we just saw Paul was walking in, like this crazy stuff. Paul's got all this spiritual power. These other guys say, well, let's glom onto that too. And so they started saying, I command you by Jesus, the one that Paul preaches. They don't even know him. Just the Jesus we've heard about from this guy, Paul. Seven sons of Sceva, who was a Jewish high priest, were all doing this. Now the evil spirit, I love the Bible. The evil spirit answered them. All right, you guys. I know Jesus. 
I recognize Paul. Who, who are you? <laughs> then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all, and prevailed against them so that they ran out of the house naked and wounded. That is a bad day for an itinerant Jewish exorcist. You are not getting a five-star review on Yelp if that is the result. When this became known to everyone who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, they became afraid. And yes, the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high esteem because friends, listen, the power of God is not some toy to be played with. It is not some weapon to be wielded. It only comes through personal firsthand knowledge of God abiding in him and it cannot be bought and sold. And so you don't play around, you know, with with tackling the forces of darkness with borrowed information about this Jesus that you heard about some guy Paul preaching. You have to know God himself. We have to abide in God himself. We have to spend time in silence and in solitude and prayer and fasting and reading the scripture to really know God and to get more of God in our hearts and our lives if we want to bear true fruit and possess true spiritual power. It can't be microwaved, friends. It only comes through deep abiding with Jesus. Now, verse 18, here's where things start to get real. Now, many who had become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices, while many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. They said, okay, we've seen real spiritual power and we've seen false spiritual power. We've been playing around with phony baloney spiritual power. Evil spirits do have power. There is such a thing as spiritual power that does not come from God. But when you see the real thing lived out, you don't want to settle for a substitute anymore, a pale imitation anymore. So they come and they're like, never mind this. We don't need these magic books. We're done. So they calculated their value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. Now you might remember that Judas betrayed our Lord Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, which was a substantial sum of money for an individual. This is like citywide economy uh, amount of money. 50,000 pieces of silver. And in this way, the word of the Lord spread and prevailed. After these events, Paul resolved by the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. And after I've been there, he said, it's necessary for me to see Rome as well. So this is where Paul wants to go. This is setting up all the way till Acts chapter 28, the last chapter where he is going to finally end up in Rome. After sending to Macedonia two of those who assisted him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now, about that time, verse 23, about that time, there was a major disturbance about the way. I always love to keep calling it the way, the way of Jesus. For a person named Demetrius, A silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis provided a great deal of business for the craftsmen. When he had assembled them, as well as the workers engaged in this type of business, he said, men, you know that our prosperity is derived from this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this guy Paul 
has persuaded and misled a considerable number of people by saying that the gods made by hand are not gods? Can you believe that? What kind of lunatic is that? Not only do we run a risk that our business may be discredited, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be despised and her magnificence come to the verge of ruin, the very one, all of Asia and the world worship. Pause on Artemis for a quick moment here. Artemis is the Greek name. Diana is how she was known by the Romans. She is a goddess who is known as a virgin. She's an archer. She's a hunter. She's associated with nature and animals, but also with fertility. And particularly in Ephesus, where her her worship was centered, she's known as the goddess of fertility. She's one of the 12 Olympians. She's a twin sister of Apollo. Some of you kids who've read like the Percy Jackson novel series, you know this stuff better than your millennial parents do because they didn't teach us Greek mythology back then. Her temple in Ephesus was the center of worship. She was worshipped all throughout the Roman, the Greco-Roman Empire, but she, her headquarters was in Ephesus. It's like people everywhere love rock and roll music, but if you want to go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you have to go to Cleveland for some reason, okay? That's like the headquarters of rock and roll. Her temple was massive. Her temple was 425 feet long and 220 feet wide, which if you go outside after this worship gathering, that's roughly double the footprint of this entire building that we're in today. It was known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Worship of Artemis was a big deal. And worship of Artemis was a big financial deal. There's a lot of money. I was talking to somebody recently about you know, all the shutdowns and all the stuff, and they were, they were grouching about the government this and the government that. And I said, listen, the government wants to get us going again. The government wants there to be professional sports again because they want them tax dollars. And the person went, that's a good point. You think about this, like this is a big deal. This is the Seahawks and the Mariners and the Storm and the Kraken and the soon-to-return Supersonics all rolled. Yeah, do I get an amen from anyone on that? Like all rolled into one. Like this is the heartbeat of the city and what makes it tick. And there is a lot of money at stake. And Demetrius is like, this Paul is messing with our money and our worship. Now, when they heard this, they were filled with rage and began to cry out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion all of a sudden, and they rushed all together into the amphitheater. The amphitheater, by the way, you can see it in Ephesus, it's roughly 25,000 seats. So this is not some small little place. We don't know how full it was, but it's a big place. I mean, that's, that's a little bit, that's like maybe half of what, uh, what's uh, T-Mobile Park, whatever it's called where the Mariners lose. Like, uh, uh, like a, you imagine like a big stadium like that, full of a lot of people. They dragged them into the amphitheater, dragging along some guys named Gaius and Aristarchus. These are Macedonians or, or Greek people who are Paul's traveling buddies. Now, Paul wanted to go in before the people, but the disciples did not let him. Don't you just love Paul's fearless, fearlessness? Oh, there's a riot? How many thousands of people out there? Cool, I want to go tell them about Jesus. And he's like, hey, Paul, that's, they're mad at you for talking about Jesus. That's why they're all there. Take a chill pill, buddy. 
even some of the provincial officials of Asia who were his friends, like higher-ups who, who know the, the politics of this stuff, are like, listen, don't go into the amphitheater. Now, some were shouting one thing and some were shouting another because the assembly was in confusion. And actually, most of the people didn't even know why they had come together. They're just mad. <laughs> oh man, some things never change, do they? Now, some of the Jewish people in the crowd gave instructions to Alexander after pushing him to the front. Here, Alexander, you go talk for us. Poor guy. Now, motioning with his hand, Alexander wanted to make his defense to the people, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, then they all shouted in unison for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, that's ridiculous. But do you know what else is ridiculous? C. Yeah, you're right. That's ridiculous. And people do that for four hours and they can't talk at work the next day. We're not so much better than these ancient people, are we? Now, two hours go by and they're chanting C. No, they're chanting great is Artemis. So the city clerk has to come out. Verse 35. So the city clerk... He comes out and he finally he got the crowd calmed down. He said, people of Ephesus, listen. What person is there who doesn't know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple guardian of the great Artemis and of the image that fell from heaven? Most scholars believe that there's some sort of meteorite or something that fell there that was a sign proving that their worship of Artemis was uh, uh, legitimate. Therefore, since these things are undeniable, you must keep calm, crowd. Don't do anything rash. You brought these men here, but they're not temple robbers or blasphemers of our goddess. So if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him, well, if they've got a case against anyone, there's courts. The courts are in session. There's proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. Like, go about it through the legal system. But if you seek anything further, it must be decided in a legal assembly. In fact, we run the risk of getting in trouble ourselves. We could be charged with rioting for what happened today since there's no justification that we can give for this, uh, as a reason for this disturbance. And after saying this, he dismissed the assembly. What an amazing thing to witness that the gospel that they're preaching is ruffling feathers so much that there's a riot of thousands of people in the amphitheater. And yet their behavior was as innocent as doves so that no charge could actually be brought against them for doing anything wrong. That's how you know you're preaching the real gospel of Jesus Christ. N.T. Wright, scholar, author, he says this. He says, have we learnt the lesson, that's just British for learned. Have we learned the lesson of being so definite in our witness to the powerful name of Jesus that people will indeed find their vested interests radically challenged? Like, are our preaching going to radically challenge people while being so innocent in our actual behavior that there will be nothing to accuse us of? There is a fine line to be trodden between a quiet, ineffective preaching of a gospel which will make no impact on real life on the one hand and a noisy, obstreperous, that just means hard to control, personally and socially offensive proclamation on the other. There is an offense to the gospel, but there ought not be an offense in our 
proclamation of the gospel. And here, the offense that this triggered is about money. So I want to share with you three principles about money that we need to remember as followers of Jesus Christ. Number one, money is a heart issue. Money is a heart issue. Again, Jesus himself said it, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And the Apostle Paul wrote that the love of money is at the root of all kinds of different evils. But when Jesus said what he said, I believe that he's meaning that there is even a deeper thing underneath the love of money. Let me say it this way. When you love money, you're actually loving something else and money is the tool that gets you that thing. So for some of you, what you want is safety. And money is the vehicle that provides you safety and stability. Others of you, you want comfort and and peace and money provides it. Others of you, you're more adventurous in your personality type and you want experiences and you want pleasures and money provides that for you. Even for some of you, money provides for you the deeper love of people and relationship because if you buy things, people will find you and take those things. If, if you invite them over, if you've got a nice house, you've got a nice yard, you've got a nice car, you've got good things. Friends, the love of money is actually the love of something else. And when we love money and we reveal that deeper heart level issue, what we reveal is that we are not truly loving the God who created us. And that is sin which is why point number two is that money is a gospel issue. There are a wide variety of metaphors used in the Bible for what the gospel is like, but one of the most powerful and one of the most reoccurring metaphors in the scripture is that of debt forgiveness. That you and I, through our sinful words and thoughts and actions and motives, have dug ourselves into a hole, a financial hole, that we could never repay in a lifetime. It's like if you got your statement back on your credit card number, and it was, let's just say, hypothetically, $1.9 trillion, a number that our government might not be able to pay back in our lifetimes, but it was on your personal credit card. An impossible amount, an impossible number for you to pay back, and yet the Son of God, with the treasure and the riches of heaven, steps in and says, I will live a perfect life. I will go to the cross. I will pay the debt that is owed. I will rise again to offer a receipt that the purchase was completed in full. And when Jesus cried out from the cross those words, it is finished, he was declaring that our debt is wiped clean, and we can now receive his gift of grace and stand before God, not on our own account, but on the credit of Jesus' account. How good is that news, church family? This is a gospel issue. Your wallet, your checkbook, your debit card could be a reminder to you each and every single day that you spend that your debt is paid by Jesus. And what's more, we have an inheritance that's awaiting us. Peter says it in 1 Peter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of all his mercies, great mercy, he he caused us to be born again 
to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And you know what we're going to be saved to? We're saved to an inheritance that is, get this, imperishable. You ever, you ever had money and then you didn't have money? How many of you still have your like stimulus checks that you got, right? Oh, you, you bought dog food. Uh, undefiled. Any of you ever regretted a purchase? Oh, I shouldn't have bought that. And unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power, you're being guarded right now through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We have an inheritance, friends. Jesus, the perfect son of God, perfect life, sacrificial death, resurrection. What is the inheritance that he received from his heavenly father? Oh, I don't know, everything. The whole universe, the whole cosmos, everything that exists is given to him. When we unite ourselves by faith to Jesus, what is our inheritance? A share of the exact same. I won't even pretend to try to fully understand what that means or what that looks like. But I know this. We're out here scrapping and fighting over $100 here, $1,000 there. Meanwhile, I am part of a kingdom with a king who says he's going to give me a share of the entire cosmos. That ought to rearrange our priorities. Which brings me to my last point. Money is a lifestyle issue. Lifestyle issue. People are often pretty comfortable saying, yeah, Jesus, Jesus died to save your soul. But we're a little more less comfortable, Jesus died to save your debit card. If it's, if it's out there and it's spiritual and it's just, you know, oh, he died and I trust him in my heart and I'll go to heaven when I die. But what if Jesus actually came to rearrange everything? What if Jesus actually meant what he said by sacrifice everything, to, to pick up your cross and to follow him, deny yourself, die daily, forsake father, mother, brother, sister, if need be for the sake of following him. If this salvation, if this inheritance is so beautiful and so costly and so worth all of it, what wouldn't we want to give up to follow him? Your debit card is not your own. You were bought with a price. Full surrender, which includes finances. So I want to close with a couple, not a couple, five more points real quickly. Practically what this looks like for you to, for you to talk about with your spouse or if you're, if you're not married to talk about with close friends this week or in your groups to talk about money because this is a lifestyle issue. It's a worship issue. It's an obedience issue. Let's talk about five things briefly. Number one, let's talk about tithing. Steady versus skeptical. Time does not permit me to go into a full teaching on tithing, but I'll just make a few quick thoughts. Number one, tithing is something that we see in the pages of the Old Testament. Tithing means a tenth. And the people, the, the people of Israel would give a tenth of their produce to the temple so that the, the priests and the tribe of the Levites could live. So tithing, kind of at its base, is giving to your local community of faith for the local work of the ministry. Tithing, though, we as elders are convinced that tithing as is as as New Testament followers of Jesus, tithing is not a binding law, but a wisdom principle by which to, to, to start with giving. And I just love the grace of God in it. I'm not that great at math, but I can hold up 10 fingers and take away one, right? I can look at a number and I can move a decimal point over one spot. I can do that, okay? 
And I was homeschooled in Alaska for a while, so I can do that. Some of you, however, need to recognize that like a 10% tithe, that's an aspirational goal that you're wanting to work toward. Even in the pages of the Mosaic Covenant, there was, there was concessions given for people who are poor or different circumstances. Some of you, a single mom or been out of work or your, your economic life's been completely disrupted by all of the pandemic stuff. There is grace for you to give sacrificially. Even Jesus said that the widow who gave the two coins out of her poverty, she gave more than anybody else. There are others of you for whom 10%, you don't even feel it. And in fact, in the Old Testament, there were extra tithes that were given, tithes for celebrations and tithes for uh, raising support for the poor. So actually, if you do the math, a lot of scholars think it's probably closer to 22 or 23%. All I am saying is that if this is your home church and you consider this to be where like, God has placed you under spiritual leadership and you want to invest not only of your talents and your time, you're here, but give of your treasure as well. Do it in a steadfast and a steady sort of way, cheerfully as God would command us. But it's not just about tithing. No, 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 no. We don't want to stop there. Because there's generosity too. Generosity. Is your generosity ready or reluctant? When we hear in our society... And I, I am, this is me as well. When we hear of someone in need, financial distress, etc., most of us default to the government shall provide. And while I'm thankful that we live in a society that has these types of safety nets, one of my wish lists, I don't know that I will ever get it this side of heaven, is that we lived in the type of tight Christian community where no one ever had to go to the government for those kinds of provisions because we all just took such good care of each other in those ups and downs of life. I don't know if that's realistic or not. I wish for that. It's aspirational. And so, yes, we can point people to social services and different programs, but what if God put you in that person's life specifically to bless them with generosity? And what if there was something incredibly powerful for you on the other side of that obedience as well that you're missing out because we're saying, well, we'll just let the tax dollars do our work giving to other organizations, giving to support other groups and people. Thank you so much for all of you who have given and contributed so much for the toothbrushes and toothpaste for, for Mexico. That was really cool to see on Friday night. Number three, though, let's keep, let's keep going. I mean, when you're on thin ice, you might as well dance, right? Uh, <laughs> that's probably just an Alaskan saying, but it's a very bad advice. Uh, let's talk about spending. Is your spending worshipful or wasteful? Spending. Again, every time you pull out that checkbook, I wish I had, I don't have this, I wish I had like stickers with like the face of Jesus that I could give to you and ask every single one of you to pull out your debit card and put Jesus' face on your debit card because I want to mess with you. Like I want your week. Like you're going to the store and you're just like, doggone it. And there's Jesus looking at you as you're swiping the debit card. <laughs> because listen, can we just be honest? How many of us have more than we really need? Every single one of us? And look, I am not saying that it is sinful when it is time to celebrate, it is time to kill the fattened calf and to celebrate. It is not, this is not a call that, you know, for, for us to say like, well, Jesus wants all of us to live like, you know, monks and nuns and take a vow of poverty. That's not what I'm saying at all. You could do something extravagant like going out for a nice fancy dinner. You could do so with a heart of worship towards the Lord or you could do so with a heart of wastefulness and not even thinking, it, thinking about it. So let's talk about your spending. Number four, let's talk about your saving. Saving. How many of you agree that saving is a biblical principle and a good thing to do? But saving can be done from a heart of wisdom, but it can also be done from a heart of worry. 
It is not wisdom and faithfulness to God and planning that drives your saving. It is fear and worry and anxiety and hoarding. When Jesus himself said, don't you think the flowers of the field are taking care well enough? Won't I take care of you? So again, saving is a good thing. But is it wisdom or is it worry? And then lastly, most importantly, let's talk about your motives in all of this. Love versus love. So love of God and love of others or love of self or love of one of those things that you love that's deep down in your heart. Your receipt log can be a very good indicator as to your heart. And you know, in our world, there is so much financial and economic disruption right now. And people are clawing and fighting tooth and nail. What government you know, stimulus package is the Senate going to pass this week? And what you know, paycheck protection program can I get on with? What if we as the people of God had an opportunity to showcase the generosity and the loving kindness of our King Jesus through actual economic gospel actions? The way that we use our money, the way that we steward our money, the way that we practice generosity, the way that we give to the church, the way that we do all of these things is a public witness to a world that is bound by fear and greed and selfishness and needs to hear about the King of Kings who, though he was rich for our sake, became poor, that in him we might receive the inheritance of heaven. And as we go to the table here in a moment, and Pastor Steve leads us in communion, let's remember that we are eating and drinking and dining with the king of heaven and earth. God, we are humbled and amazed and in awe that you would save paupers like us, poverty-stricken orphans like us, and that, Lord, in your goodness and in your grace, you have chosen to give us a share of the inheritance of the riches of heaven. Lord, I ask and I pray now as we come to the table, as we eat and drink and prepare ourselves to sing, Lord, I ask and I pray that you would help us to do so with a heart of gratitude and being willing to give up anything and everything for the sake of following you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.